Good morning. I invite you to turn in your worship folders to uh, our scripture reading for today. We are working our way through the, uh, the seven messages that Jesus uh, spoke to the churches in Asia Minor. We're on the, the fifth church this morning, the church in Sardis. So I like it when you read your, uh, read your scripture out loud together with me. So let's read God's word together. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels." He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus, in this message, this prophetic message to his church, he breaks with the pattern that he's had in the other messages. He does not say anything that commends them. He refers to nothing here in which he sees something worthy or good. He immediately goes to that which is what he has against them. And what he says is a declaration that is just haunting. He says, you have the reputation. In other words, you look like people think you are alive, but you're really a dead church. Um, This goes at the heart of one of the most powerful weapons that Satan has against a believer or against the church. And it's, it's the weapon of deception. The problem with a person who is deceived is they do not know that they are deceived. It is why it is so difficult to arouse. It's so difficult to, to, to inspire or to, to even correct the person who is deceived because the deception makes them think they're okay. And Jesus says, you're deceiving yourselves. You think you're alive. Others think you're alive, but you're really dead. And the only frenzy... <laughs> The only assessment that matters is Jesus's. If he says a church is dead, it's dead. Now, there's a a history here in Sardis. There's a history of this church that I think plays into the spiritual stronghold that they have run into in this church. Sardis uh, once was one of the capitals of one of the greatest empires of the ancient world. In the 6th century B.C., there was a king over Sardis by the name of Croesus. And I don't know if I've I've read this in literature, I've heard people say, but there's a saying that goes, he's as rich as Croesus. And I used to go, who's Croesus? And what does it mean that he's as rich as Croesus? That had no meaning... For me, but it shows up uh, as a saying that has now existed for 26 centuries. This king was incredibly 
powerful. He was incredibly rich. He was known all over the world as a rich, powerful ruler. He decided, however, that he wanted to be the most powerful ruler in the whole world. And at that time, the most powerful kingdom was the Persian Empire. And so Croesus decided he wanted to attack Cyrus, the king of the Persians. And so he took his resources, he took his army, and he attacked the Persian capital. But he lost. So he decided he would return to Sardis, his capital, and he would, re- he would repair what had been lost, he would restore his army, and he would make another attempt on the Persians. But little did he know that Cyrus wasn't fooling around, and Cyrus sent his forces immediately to Sardis to take Sardis. Now, Sardis was a, uh, a high, high um, a city, situated very uh, at a high altitude, and one of the, the only uh, undefended parts of Sardis was a, a, a kind of a sheer cliff or a precipice that had to be scaled and was, was, was impossible, they believed, for anyone to climb. And so they, they invested everything in fortifying all the exposed parts of the city. But this one part, Croesus says, no one will ever be able to attack us from here. Well, obviously, what happened is Cyrus had mountain climbers. He had uh, soldiers who could scale that mountain. They scaled it. They defeated Croesus and destroyed him and destroyed his reign. It's interesting if you think about it. uh, Croesus was already defeated before he knew it because he didn't defend the one place that he was vulnerable. Well, a few hundred years later, Another king has arisen in Sardis. He, is, he has risen to great power and, and uh, riches again. And now he's attacked by another ruler. And again, not learning from history, they leave this section undefended. Once again, saying no one can climb this, forgetting that 200 years ago someone climbed it and defeated them. And so once again, the, the king was known as Antiochus, sent his climbers. They defeated the city and destroyed Sardis, and Sardis never rose again to be a major city. Especially in the days of the Roman Empire, Sardis was never more than just kind of a middling, blue-collar sort of city. Never rose to any power or prominence. Now, I don't want to take this too far, but I would like to draw a couple of, uh, a couple of illustrations from this. Number one... Number one is that people tend not to learn from their history. They tend to forget. They tend to believe what they want to believe. So therefore, it's not, it's not impossible that you have a greater capacity to be deceived than you realize. The other thing is this. What's going on in your life, just as what went on in the lives of the people who were part of the church in Sardis, it's spiritual in its origin, it's spiritual in its nature. What goes on that you, you do not see, the unseen things that are happening are just as important as the things you see. One of the things that, that I've, I've come to see as I've, I've looked at, at the history of territories is that whatever strongholds our forefathers give in a territory, Satan continues to exploit even generations down the line when we've forgotten all about who did this or who did that. As a matter of fact, 
you begin to see that Satan is so good at repeating patterns that work that he never leaves those patterns till you stop him. And there is a sense in which, whether you're in Sardis or we're in New City or wherever it is, there's always a vulnerable place. There's always a place that in our pride, in our self-sufficiency, in our self-reliance, in our self-protection, or whatever it is, there's a place we think we're good, we think we're okay, we think we're protected, but that's the very place that is exploited. The Bible teaches it this way, pride comes before the fall. God gives grace to the humble, but He opposes the proud. So any place that you think you're invincible, any place where you start to think you've got it together, any place where you begin to say, I got this covered, is the hill that the enemy will scale and you are defeated even before he attacks you. Now, how does this turn into a problem for the church in Sardis? Well, Jesus begins to explain it right from his introductory remarks to this church. This church is the church that he identifies himself to them as the one who has the seven spirits of God and then the seven stars. Now, if you've ever tried to study your Bible and understand the different symbolisms that are there, sometimes it's somewhat difficult. But often, what Jesus is doing when he writes these messages to the churches He's referring back to Old Testament teachings. And this particular idea of the seven spirits of God, we're going to unpack a little bit for you because it's important that you understand it, comes from basically two Old Testament prophets. It's the idea that's found in Isaiah 11, and it's also, it's also revealed in Zechariah chapter 4. And it isn't so much that the Holy Spirit is seven spirits. That's not the point of this. As a matter of fact, if you know your New Testament, the Holy Spirit is one spirit. There is one Holy Spirit. God has revealed himself. The only reason we believe in a trinity is not because we came up and invented a trinity. It's because he has revealed himself in this rather complex way that he is one God who exists in three persons. And, and it's only through his revelation that we know this. And it's, and, and it's difficult to understand because how can one God be in three persons? But this is how he has revealed himself. Not three gods, not one person, but three persons, one God. And so uh, this whole aspect of what Jesus is referring to here is not so much that there are seven spirits... But the idea comes from Isaiah 11, particularly in verse 2, that there is a sevenfold fullness or manifestation of the fullness of the Spirit of God. And Isaiah, Isaiah doesn't say seven spirits, but he talks about the sevenfold characteristics of God's Spirit, of His Holy Spirit, who is God, who has and brings to us everything that God has, who is our own divine personal rev- resident in the heart of every believer. But what, he, what he's unfolding or unpacking is the, the immensity, the intensity, the beauty, the glory of His Holy Spirit with us and in us. In Isaiah 2, first he, he declares that this is the very Spirit of God, that 
When you have the Holy Spirit, you have all that God is. You have all that God has. All the characteristics of God are residing in you. And then he begins to explain what some of that means through the other, the other folds of this fullness. He says he's the spirit of wisdom, all of God's wisdom, all of God's understanding, all of his counsel, all of his strength, all of his knowledge. And within him is the true reverence and worship and awe of God himself. So now why does that matter that you begin to understand that what he's talking about here is that if a, ch- if a church is alive... If a person is alive, that person is alive because of the fullness and the residence and the indwelling and the, even, the, you would say, the immersion or baptism into the Holy Spirit of God. And so that everything that is the Spirit's is yours if you're filled with the Spirit. So when Jesus makes the declaration, this church is dead, he's not saying this church doesn't have Sunday school anymore. He's not saying this church, you know, doesn't have Sunday night services. They don't have pews. They don't sing hymns. He's saying this church does not have the Holy Spirit. The only way you can declare a church dead is if the Spirit is absent. Now, I mean, just to bring this into more modern terms, in the Christian Missionary Alliance, of which we're a part, which Nyack is a part of, one of the great prophetic voices in the Alliance was a man by the name of A.W. Tozer. Tozer wrote some powerful devotional books and books that are uh, magnificent on his experience with God and, and wonderful deeper life theology. But in the 50s, Tozer made this prophetic proclamation, I would say, about the church in America. He said, if the Holy Spirit were to leave the American church, 95% of what the church is doing would go on. That's a horrible thing to say. See, it should be, but it is more like Sardis, it should be that if the Holy Spirit were to any anyway withdraw his presence from us, we would immediately know and we would immediately go to our faces and we would immediately go to our knees because apart from him, we do not have life. But it's, it, there's more going on here in this letter even than the fact that, that the Spirit of God is no longer present in the church in Sardis. Jesus also says, I'm the one who also holds the seven angels of the churches in my hands. Now, he has, he has, he, he has made a statement and, and revealed something that I think we have to take seriously, you know, especially if you are spiritually minded and are willing to go after the supernatural sources and, and roots of, of the promises and blessings of God and the favor of God in your life. In other words, what he's saying here is that to every single church, there is a supernatural representative of God who is assigned to that church. He calls them the angel of that church. I don't believe this is simply, you know, the leaders of that church. I think what he's saying there is that there is a spiritual source of life and power. There's a spiritual source of direction that is angelic in its character. So if God has assigned to every church an angel, 
then you can bet that the enemy who counterfeits everything that God does has also assigned to a church demons. Now, in case you are afraid, you know, God gives one, Satan gives five, maybe the demons are winning. You have to remember, Satan has limited resources. So he has to primarily strategize and use the the best strategy to destroy a church or an individual with the resources that he has. And so when Jesus is writing here and he is saying that the church is dead, what he is saying is that the leadership of the church has kicked out the Holy Spirit. Now, it isn't that the letter isn't also to the members of the church or to the other followers of Christ in the church. Obviously, the letter is to everybody in the church. But the reason that the church is dead, the cause of the death of the church, is it no longer has spirit-filled leaders. It has leaders who are out of alignment with the Holy Spirit. It has leaders who are no longer filled with the Holy Spirit. And so the church now has closed the door to the Holy Spirit. Now, track with me on this. Here's what's offered. Fullness of the Spirit is the very Spirit of Christ in our midst. Christ himself with us even in a better way than he was with his 12 disciples. Christ with us in the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's enough all by itself. But what what the sevenfold fullness means is that the church then is access to the very wisdom of God. The church has access to all the knowledge of God. The church has access to the counsel of God of the Spirit of God. The church has access to worship like never before, a pipeline to the very throne of God. The church opening itself up to the sevenfold fullness of the Holy Spirit has the strength for any age that it lives in. But instead, the leaders have compromised with the world, kicked out the Holy Spirit, and said, we have enough strength, we have enough counsel, we have enough wisdom, we have enough knowledge. Because let me tell you something, friend. The Spirit of Christ and the Spirit of this world do not mix in a church. You either get one or you get the other. One has to be cast out for the other to be present. There is no mixing here. There isn't half Holy Spirit and half world. Just as there is no half God and half man in Jesus, he's fully man and he's fully God. There's no mixing. This isn't... It isn't a man-made superhero from DC Comics or something. And yet what we see is Jesus is speaking and he's saying to the leadership of this church, you chose your own wisdom, strength, counsel, and knowledge over mine. And you're corrupt and you're compromised and you're dead. Here's the, if, if you go back to the story of Sardis, you see, they were defeated before the battle even started because of their pride, because of their arrogance. We don't need to defend this. We're invincible. Sounds like what we do in every age. I got this covered. I can do this. I don't need you. I just need my own wisdom. I need my own strength. And in some churches, it manifests this way. We've never done things that way, so we're not going to do them that way. We don't do things that way around here. It's 
really interesting. Even in the Old Testament, the Lord applauded and praised those who learned that even when a circumstance or a situation looked like a previous circumstance, they didn't assume that they knew what God was doing, but rather they inquired of the Lord. See, that, that's what he's talking about here. That when there's a place where we think we have it covered, where we think we've arrived, then the enemy has already killed us. Now, if we look at this carefully, then Jesus says, here's the symptoms of how that happens. The first symptom that he gives to us, he uses, he uses the idea of that there is a spiritual slothfulness in us. And uh, the guy that uh, coined this phrase for me is Scottish, so every time I see it, I say, I say sloth or something like that. You know? So I sort of try to figure out a Scottish accent for him. Although every accent I ever do sounds like Inspector Clouseau, so it doesn't work for me. <laughs> but the idea here, when you talk about spiritual sloth, you're talking about indifference, apathy, no hunger. Here's, here's how this Scottish preacher put it. He said, when the praises of God surround you, but they do not come from your heart. When the word of God is heard by you, but does not come into you and transform you. One of the ways that you know that people have spiritual sloth or apathy or indifference is that they treat the Word of God as if it were nothing more than the Word of a man. Let me give you some examples of that. You see, when someone is either teaching or they're preaching or they're leading you in the Word of God, yes, They are an imperfect vessel. And yes, their own experiences and their own education and their own sense of learning and revelation will certainly limit and and in some ways hinder what the Spirit can do. But the Spirit of God, even in an inadequate vessel, is still making the appeal of Christ to you. When the word is being preached, when it's being taught, it's not the word of a man or a woman. It's the word of God. Jesus is making his appeal through his inadequate vessel. And it's fascinating to me to see how many people have this spiritual sloth when they could have the riches of God. They waste themselves on the pleasures of the moment. So many times. I can see it in people. I, I guess people think they're, they're great deceivers or something. But they will come up and they will say to me, that was interesting. You gave me something to think about. In other words, they're saying, you're just a man. What you have to say, I will be sovereign over. I will decide if it's worthy or not. Let me tell you, that's spiritual sloth. You understand, when Jesus is speaking, even through an inadequate man or woman, it's still Jesus speaking. And the the spirit that's alive will know his voice. He's calling you by name. He's reading your mail. This is why a lot of times people say, were you in our car yesterday? Were you at our house when we had this fight? Of course not, but the Spirit who's using the Word and who uses it in a powerful way, whether 
I've seen it whether people were highly educated or they were, they were very lowly educated, whether they come from one culture or another culture, because this word of the Spirit, the appeal of Christ is, is transcendent to culture. It's the kingdom of God coming through the kingdom of man. And if there's hunger in you, then that hunger didn't necessarily come from you. As a matter of fact, hunger for God is the first work of God. But it has to be treasured by you. And it has to be cultivated. You know, there are seasons, there are seasons in my life where I I read my Bible all day long and all night long. I don't do that all the time, but when I had that hunger, I knew it was from God. Because my flesh hungers for entertainment. My spirit hungers for things eternal. This, this Scottish uh, preacher that I love, he, he, he said that he had preached this sermon and there was this very famous lawyer in attendance. And uh, he knew uh, that the lawyer wasn't there for his preaching. The lawyer was, was pursuing a young woman in the church. And trying to make it like, I'm, I'm a religious guy, you should trust me, and all this stuff. So he calls up the family of the young woman, and uh, the lawyer pipes in to the conversation and says to him, that was a very interesting sermon you gave, but ten minutes would have been enough of it. And so uh, this Scottish pastor said to him, well, I understand you're a great lawyer, Has 10 minutes ever been enough to defend the life of someone that you were defending in a trial? He said, it's amazing what we will do for temporary things and how little we do for what's eternal. Well, there's not only this spiritual sloth, but there's a spiritual forgetfulness that leads to death. It, this is common in all of us. We hit a trial, and we act as if we've never had a trial before. We go, how could this happen to me? This always happens to me, we'll say, as if God has never intervened. As if no promise has ever ever come true for us. As if we have, are starting all over from scratch and we know nothing. Isn't it interesting that in the progression of the Spirit of God in your life and the growth of your spirit, there have to be things to overcome so that you can be an overcomer. That way, if you are truly a believer, then you are born of God. And that which is born of God must overcome the world because that's who Jesus is. That's who the Spirit, it's the Spirit of the overcomer. But if there's never anything to overcome then you have no spiritual muscles. You have no spiritual anointing. You have no spiritual experience. It's all theory, and I don't want to hear your theories. I want to hear your experiences. I want to know where you applied the truth, not where you came up with the truth. And so in order to do that, some of you are in difficult marriages because God puts you there. So that it would be a laboratory for agape love. And what happens is many of us fail the lab. Because we think it's for our pleasure. We think it's for me, for my selfish 
fulfillment instead of it being for me to learn agape love. Some of us, what happens is we don't get the jobs we want. We don't have the money we want. And God is showing by putting his finger on stopping you in certain things. He's putting his finger on where your treasures really are. You see, because if something other than Jesus is your treasure, then God has to oppose your treasure. He will not resource your dysfunction. He will not make your idol your lover. He will say no, because he will, as the spirit of truth, not tolerate a minute of your fantasy. But you and I forget that. And we think that we can get leverage with God, we can get leverage in life, so life will go our way. And when it doesn't, we bail out on prayer, we bail out on worship, and we bail out on even our faith. Because we forget we've been here before and God has gotten us through. Here's a fascinating thing to me, is that there have been many times where I thought the month was a lot longer than the money, and yet the rent got paid. There were a lot of times when, when I don't know how the math added up, but all the bills got paid. And sometimes it was in anxiety that I prayed. Sometimes it was in anger that I prayed. And yet the goodness of the Lord was still true in the land of the living. And then it happens again. And he's saying, will you forget again? So spiritual sloth, sleepiness, a spirit, we, I would call it a spirit of stupor that we're going to talk about in a minute, and the spirit of forgetfulness that comes along with it. Well, so what Jesus refers to here is he refers to those garments. And it's an interesting, it's an interesting kind of thing because the, the referral in the letter to garments is a referral to character. So the idea of a garment is that how you clothe the person was an expression of their worship or their heart. Even in pagan temples, the way that uh, uh, the, the people in Sardis would have understood is if you had come into the temple of a pagan god with dirty clothes on, you would be turned away. Because to come in and not to reverence the place or reverence the god meant that there was something corrupt about your soul that was manifesting in your garments. And so what Jesus is talking about here is that those in Sardis have made a decision that they will, they will compromise their character in order to have what they think they need or want, in order to exist in the society, in order to continue in the society. So they've forgotten anything about their own values, they've forgotten their own commitments, they've forgotten their own beliefs, and instead they have gone to a pragmatism of, here's how we will survive. The only value they have is surviving. And so Jesus says, your garments are corrupt, your garments are dirty, they are in a state where you cannot even approach me. Well, he asks for four things of the people if, if they're willing to undo the death that is in them. And it's, it's an interesting thing because only the one who has been raised from the dead can raise a dead church. 
So he says four things to, him, to them. He says, wake up and rouse yourself. He says, restore what remains. He says, remember what you knew before. And then he says, keep what is valuable and repent. So let's, let's kind of look at these four together. So when he says to them, wake up, he's speaking to the source, in a sense, of their stupor. He's wanting them to see reality. He's wanting them to see truth. For example, uh, what could be really envisioned here is for the leadership or for the, the, the church itself, for the individuals to begin to realize, you know what? Being compromised, being torn between the things of this world and the things of God is really not working for me. And by saying and referring them to this fullness, this sevenfold fullness of the Spirit, he's saying to them, wake up. The direction, the momentum of your life is taking you into an area that's a dead end that you don't want to go to. Wake up. I mean, it's a little bit like the picture if you've ever been driving your car down the road and and you start dozing. Well, there's nothing good going to come from that moment. You know, you're either going to get in the lane of somebody else or you're going to go off the road, but whatever's going to happen there is not going to be good. And so when you rouse yourself, usually it's because somebody's honking at you or you suddenly you have, a, a, you know, some feeling like, oh, bad things are happening. And you wake up and you grab the wheel. This is, the, this is sort of the picture here is that you're traveling down this one way and suddenly you realize this isn't where I want to go. This is not what I intended to do with my life. And you wake up and you start to see there's something different. There's something better. Now, here's here's part of waking up. And it's part of repenting that he says at the end as well. None of us are smart enough. None of us are strong enough. None of us are holy enough. I mean... If you're still mixing, I'm going to try to be good. I'm going to try to be valuable. I'm going to try to be worthy. Just stop it. Just end it. Because that's you saying, you know, I'm going to give a little of my knowledge to God. Do you think he needs that? It's like giving the Mississippi River water. I mean, forget it. Just just come to that place where you wake up and realize, I'm morally bankrupt. I'm spiritually bankrupt. I tried to be good. I'm not good. I can't tell you the number of times people come up to the altar. You know, and we say, come to the altar. And they come, I promise God I will do better. I just punch them in Jesus' name. (laughs) Wake up! Because that's the same stupid prayer you've been praying, and it doesn't work. Because every time you do it, you get worse. Because it's not about yourself. That's still the hill that the enemy knows how to climb. It's when you say, what you have I need. What you have I want. And I will pay whatever needs to be paid 
of denying self, of taking up my cross, of repenting of my sins, of changing my mind, of giving my heart to you, I will do whatever it takes in order that I might be filled with the sevenfold fullness of the Spirit. Now, it's not every day we talk about the sevenfold fullness because it, I don't know, it just doesn't roll off the tongue real easily. But the, Jesus is saying, I'm the one who holds the sevenfold Spirit. And what's he saying? If you want to be alive, you got to receive him from me. And then all that he is becomes all that you are. But in order for that to happen, you have to die. You have to let go of the protection. You have to let go of your own wisdom. I mean, many of us, our favorite verse in all the Bible is Proverbs 3, 3 through 5. We say, you know, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. And we like that verse, we just don't live that verse. Because every time there's a new trial, we lean on our old understanding. And then we forget, oh, I could have, maybe this will be our new watchword. I could have the sevenfold fullness of the Holy Spirit right now. I love that in a way. I mean, we're really just talking about the Holy Spirit. But what Jesus is trying to get across to them, all wisdom. All knowledge that you're... I mean, why are you so scared? Why are you so afraid in a trial? Because I don't know what's going to happen. Why am I so afraid? Because I don't know if I have the strength to go through it. Why am I... Because it's beyond my wisdom. You know what the Holy Spirit says in those moments? I have you right where I want you. Because at this moment, you know you need me. Instead of spiritual sloth, it becomes spiritual desperation. Now, are you tracking? Some of you are tracking, okay? All right, listen to this part of a minute. Restore what remains or strengthen what remains. This is, and also when he says remember what, what you had or what you've heard. This is one of those catchy little things that people miss. You can only revive what was once alive. See, to revive means there once was life, and now you're getting it again. So he's saying here that though you are dead, somewhere in there is something that's alive. And usually what it is, is it's an experience with Christ. It's a It's something that was real to you, something that wasn't somebody else's beliefs put on you, but your true beliefs, your true value. And what he's saying is strip away all the dead stuff and strengthen that thing that's alive. Now, here's what I believe he means by this. He means that at some place, at some point to be alive, The good news of Jesus Christ had to penetrate deep into your soul. At some point, you began to realize, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And Jesus moved into that place where you started to see your need, and Jesus began to fill that need. And and the gospel is so beautiful. Think about just some of the tenets of the gospel that Jesus took on himself the treatment you deserved so that you will receive the treatment he deserves. Jesus 
endured the rejection of the Father. The Father turned his face away from Jesus and cursed his own Son so that you would never be rejected. So the Father would never turn his face from you and so that instead of cursing, you will receive blessing. You you have to understand, in some ways, you have to begin to understand your own heart and what the Bible teaches about your heart, that your heart is this very special place within you. It's not just your emotions. The Bible never teaches the heart as emotion. matter of fact, in the Greek language, the kidneys were the place where your emotions came from. Or your intestines was where your emotions came from. But the heart was this place where your emotions and your intellect and your will all came together. In other words, the heart is the control center of your being. Where is it God wants? He wants your heart. He wants that control center. He wants that place where all your deepest commitments are. He wants that place where what you know that you know that you know, your heart is the vault of your treasures. It's what you would die for. It's what you live for. And Jesus says, I want your heart. I want your heart. And he says, you know, once you treasure, once you treasure that you are his treasure, everything changes. See, there's there's a fascinating thing in this. One of the guys that was in a church I was a pastor of came up to me and said, I read that verse. It says, you've been, you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. And he looked at me and pointed at me a finger in my face and he said, what good does that do me at the grocery store? What good does that do me at my job? <laughs> it's so funny because he's like, I got gotcha, you. Kind of a thing. Listen, friends, if your only hunger is the grocery store, you'll never be filled. If your truest hunger is promotion at your job, you'll never be filled. You could have a mansion and you'll live like it's a shack. But if you get in touch with what your true hunger is, which is the sevenfold fullness of the Spirit of God, then you can live in a shack and it'll seem like a mansion. Stay with me for a minute on this. For years, I struggled with this so much because in my heart, I wanted things. I wanted people to do what I wanted them to do, and I wanted life to go the way I wanted it to go, and I was mostly angry and frustrated, and I prayed angry and frustrated prayers. I was far more theologically sophisticated than I'm about to reveal to you, but it was simply a mask in which I was saying to God, if you're really good, you will do what I want you to do. And if you really love me, this wouldn't happen to me. And so I didn't get very far with God because I wanted God to give me my treasures. I prayed about my treasures. I insisted that he protect my treasures. And for some reason, because he's the lover of my soul, not the enabler of my dysfunction. He said no. So I was angry with him a lot. And I grew up a Calvinist, so it was okay to be angry with him at times. Lisa was a Wesleyan. She was angry at herself and me mostly. 
So one day, I'm cutting the grass. Often I've had revelation cutting the grass. I don't know what it is about cutting the grass. I was in one of the worst emotion, emotional states. I was angry. I was upset. Nothing was going the way I wanted it to go. Nothing was going right. Everything felt cursed. And all of a sudden, I had this, it was like an epiphany. Because something happened in that control center, in my heart of hearts. I finally said, here's the vault. Here's what I'm going to lock down on. Here's what the deposit is. You are good. And then the second one came. And again, I tell you, they're simple, but they became real to me. They weren't theories. They weren't someone else's doctrine. They were my heart of hearts. You are good and you love me. Do you know what? The circumstance didn't change. And I did have to continue and finish cutting the grass. But I was changed forever. Because suddenly I wasn't testing him all the time. I wasn't susceptible to a, an in run by the enemy of climbing up the hill and saying, you're getting too strong, let me take you out now. Because suddenly it wasn't my direction, it was his direction. The things in my life were not my treasure, he was my treasure. You see, once you lock that in the vault, you will see he is good all the time. And it won't just be a slogan that people who don't believe it say. That's what gives you life. Now the last thing is this. Look, look at this with me for a second. He said, yet you have still a few names in Sardis. They will walk with me in white for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. When I was reading that again last night and getting ready for this morning, it hit me with a wave of emotion like I hadn't had over that verse ever. And I, I, it began, I believe, the Spirit began to unpack it for me. There's, there's a number of things here. Number one. It isn't so much that white is a better color than other colors. That's not the issue here. The issue is that white, as a garment, once it's stained, is, is apparent. I mean, this is so true that any of you who have children, you don't have white carpets at your house. And if you have a husband, you don't have white any, you know, furniture or anything else, because he's going to watch TV and drop the chips and dip all over it, you know. Because the, the issue is that once white is stained, it's apparent. Okay, you, you with me on that? So what he's saying is that there were a group of people. They weren't the leaders. Because he would have addressed the leaders first. They were not the leaders. They were actually under dead leadership. And yet... They had made Jesus their treasure and they had never stained their garments by compromising. They lived in a culture antagonistic to the values of Christ and yet they chose not to give in. Okay, you got that picture? Well, the second thing is this then. How did they get there? See, when I used to read this, I go, God, I'm going to try so hard not to be stained. I'm going to try so hard not to get, you know, 
Like when I was a kid and my mother would dress me in something light colored and I, I'd come home dirty as could be. I mean, it's just, it's just the nature. You try, you say you're not going to do it, but the dirt is a lot of fun when you're a kid. Maybe when you're older. So what is he saying here? Because if you try, you're not gonna, it's not going to succeed. So what is he saying? I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what I believe. He has valued you. He has said over you, you're my son, you're my daughter. He has, he has made to dwell in you the sevenfold fullness of his spirit. Everything that he is, everything that he has is yours. The very spirit who raised Jesus from the dead belongs to you. He's valued you. He's invested in you. He's called you by name. He's called you friend. But do you value him? I mean, it's when you start to say, here's what I value. And it's not bogus anymore. It's not fake. And it's not pretend. And it's not counterfeit. And how will you know that? It's when you decide the temporary things are not going to get your full attention. You see, why do you think people get dead and, and dry in their spirit? It's because they begin to invest the passion they have in things that do, that do not love them back. See, if you ever make a treasure of anything that has not made you a treasure, you will always be dry, dead, disappointed. Every treasure you invest in will ask you to die for it. But only one treasure has ever died for you. And only one treasure can treasure you. Your job will not treasure you like that. Truthfully, not even your family. Nor your vocations, your hobbies, any of those things. It is when your treasure is in the right place, in the heart. And you say, that's my treasure. And see, if he's your treasure, here's his promise. If I'm your life, I will give you life abundantly. But if he's not your life, he's not going to give you your idolatry abundantly. Now, hopefully I'm coming across the way I want to here. I'm going to end it on this. this. This touched me. He says it is possible. It is possible for us to rise up and to live worthy of who he is. And to live worthy of who we are. But it's a choice. It's a hard thing. It's not a behavior thing. It's not fake it till you make it. It's not pretend. Because how do I know that? Because he said that church was pretending. They're dead. So pretending doesn't make it. It's a hard thing. And here's the hard thing. If I lose everything else, I still have my treasure. That's the only ones he says are worthy. Now, now here's, a, here's an interesting thing to me. You don't put people in white clothes if you think they're just going to get dirty. He knows those who know this is my worth, this is my value. And when you know this is my worth, this is my identity, this is my glory, this is what I wait in my life, then you get to walk in white. Because you're not going to compromise it. You're not going to corrupt it. 
something about that hit me. I said, Lord, I want to be that trustworthy. Lord, I want to understand the worth you've placed in me so that I can live worthy of who I am in you. And not every time forget when I hit a trial or every time that it gets tough, I want to go into spiritual slumber. But I want to be one of those filled with your spirit, filled with the worth, living this way. Would you stand with me? Can you close your eyes for a second? I just want to I want to speak a few words over you, and then I'll, I'll let, you, let you go on. But Would you listen carefully to this, please? He says, repent. He says, obey and repent. It's interesting. I've lived with Jesus for a long time. I made a stand with him some years ago. You are good, and you love me, and I've never looked back. And instead of being disappointing, it has been amazing. Here's what I'm saying to you today is you will not know all the doors that will open to you until you are willing to obey. He cannot show you the riches that are ahead for you if you are already closed. Wake up. Restore. Remember, be disposed to obey. And then he says, repent. Repentance isn't about having a whole lot of emotion. As a matter of fact, people who get caught have a lot of emotion, but no repentance. They're just mad they got caught or they're just guilty or whatever. It actually gets in the way of change. The only people who truly repent are people in a sense, in a very, in almost a cold way, in an analytical way, in a, in a, you know, just seeing things as they really are way and says, you know what, where I've been going does not work. Fullness of the Holy Spirit, life in the Spirit is the recognition that life apart from Him does not work. And anywhere the Spirit of God today is showing you that you're trying to mix Holy Spirit stuff with world stuff is where you say, I renounce the world. I renounce the lie. And I take hold of the truth. That's true repentance. Repent, repentance is recognizing the deception, renouncing the lie, and receiving the truth. And not a one of you in this room is immune from that. Receive his truth. Take off the old garments. Let him put the new one on you. Would you make this one commitment today with me? Maybe even you can make it to me as a pastor. Stop pretending. No lying. Get honest. If you're a leader in this church, then where you are right now means higher levels, higher devils. More honesty, not less. You do not get to levels of authority. You do not get to levels of spiritual uh, ministry and power and passion. You do not get there by pretending. 
You only get there by vulnerability, honesty, transparency. He's the spirit of truth, not the spirit of your mask. Make this a day in which you say, I'm not going to pretend anymore. Even if that means you expose your angry, exposes your into sexual immorality, it exposes that you're into anxiety or worry or control or fear or whatever it is because those are opposed to the sevenfold fullness of the Holy Spirit. You can go from this point on and have a reputation of being alive, but Jesus says you're dead. Or you can be clothed in white and live and walk with him worthy. I choose the latter. Will you choose it too? Make a commitment, a heart commitment. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We have people up here who will pray with you. God bless you. I'm glad that you're here. We'll see you next week.